Okay, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Ranting at you, as always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side in the wee hours of August 27th, 2021. And you may have noticed that last Sunday, August 21st, was the ninth anniversary of the chemical attack at Ghouta, a suburb outside Damascus, which was the first massive gas attack of the Syrian war, with estimates of the dead as high as 1,500, overwhelmingly civilians and including many children, using the nerve agent sarin, which is outlawed by the Chemical Weapons Convention. Now, this was famously, just after President Obama had declared a chemical attack by the Assad regime to be a so-called red line that would demand a military response, but he backed down from airstrikes after the attack and instead had the Russians broker a deal in which the dictatorship of Bashar Assad would ostensibly, keyword, join the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, OPCW, and sign the Chemical Weapons Convention and surrender its chemical weapons to be destroyed. This was formalized in United Nations Resolution 2118, and the Assad regime subsequently declared some 1,300 tons of chemical weapons and precursor agents to have been destroyed. But questions remained about whether the regime disposed of its entire stockpile, and it has become clearer in the ensuing years that it did not. April 4th, 2017, saw the chemical attack at Khan Shikun in northern Idlib province, once again with sarin gas, killing some hundred, and almost exactly a year later, on April 7th, 2018, we saw the attack at Duma, also in the Damascus suburbs, this time using weaponized chlorine, sort of exploiting a loophole in the Chemical Weapons Convention, and leaving some 50 dead. Both these attacks, Khan Shikun in 2017 and Duma in 2018, did spark rather cursory airstrikes from President Donald Trump on regime air bases, which to my mind were something of a charade. It was revealed that the Russians had been tipped off in advance both times to avoid hitting any of their troops or war material, and we may assume that the Russians tipped off Assad, who knew the strikes were coming and presumably got his most critical material off the runways ahead of time. So quite likely a big political show that did nothing to erode the regime's ability to rain death down on the Syrian people, whether by chemical or conventional means. UN resolutions calling for an investigation to actually assign blame in the chemical attacks have been repeatedly blocked by Russia at the Security Council. 
Syria in April 2021 was stripped of its voting rights at the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, OPCW, after findings documented the regime's continued use of poisonous gas throughout the course of the war. And in January of this year, the UN High Representative for Disarmament Affairs, Izumi Nakamitsu, told the Security Council that Syria's declaration to the United Nations of its chemical weapons program cannot be considered accurate due to gaps, inconsistencies, and discrepancies. The Independent Syrian Network for Human Rights, SNHR, counts over 200 chemical attacks over the course of the war, overwhelmingly attributed to the regime. And how does The Nation magazine, the most respected organ of America's establishment left, commemorate Gouda? By running historical revisionist, genocide denialist, blame the victim lies in the most glib, offhand, and nonchalant manner. And this appeared in a piece that ran August 22nd, just one day after the anniversary of the Chemical Massacre, entitled, Whose Rules? Our Rules, in the Rules-Based International Order, How the U.S. Leads by Helping Other People Kill Each Other, by one David Bromwich. Now, the obnoxious and sneering headline is right away a tip-off. Bromwich uses that problematic first-person plural pronoun, our rules, betraying implicit identification with the American empire, another textbook case in imperial narcissism that still views all global conflicts through the prism of U.S. power, just reversing the supposed good guys and bad guys in reflexive manner. But infuriatingly, he writes, quote, when Barack Obama said the 2013 chemical attack in Gouda, Syria, had crossed a red line and he would bomb the Assad government in retaliation, he invoked the norms-based international order. Eventually, the casus belli was discredited by research from Theodore Postel, Seymour Hirsch, Aaron Maté, and others, showing that the attack had likely been a false flag operation by rebels linked to al-Qaeda. End quote. After reading that, any other points he may be making are delegitimized, as far as I'm concerned. How much distortion can you pack into one little paragraph? Let's review the basic facts for those of you who may not be aware of them because you rely on sources like The Nation. <clears throat> First of all, Barack Obama didn't call the 2013 chemical attack in Gouda a red line. He had used that phrase before the attack and then changed his mind after the attack and dropped the idea of carrying out airstrikes. Second, we can examine the calumny that Ghouta was then held by, quote, rebels linked to al-Qaeda, 
End quote. Guta was held by a loose alliance of factions, mostly under the banner of the Free Syrian Army. Some Salafist in orientation, but this was just when the jihadists were beginning to establish a foothold among the Syrian rebels. So the inevitable, quote, link to al-Qaeda catchphrase was probably not warranted. As if this even matters to the right and wrong of the situation, which it doesn't. Now, Human Rights Watch, on September 10th, 2013, just weeks after the attack, released a report entitled Attacks on Ghouta, Analysis of Alleged Use of Chemical Weapons in Syria. The report relied on witness accounts of the rocket attacks, physical remnants of the rockets, and symptoms exhibited by the victims, as documented by medical staff. Said Peter Bukert, Emergencies Director at Human Rights Watch, and author of the report, quote, Rocket debris and symptoms of the victims from the August 21st attacks on Gouda provide telltale evidence about the weapon systems used. This evidence strongly suggests that Syrian government troops launched rockets carrying chemical warheads into the Damascus suburbs that terrible morning, end quote. Relying on video footage as well as higher-resolution images of weapon remnants provided by local activists in eastern Ghouta, the report found that the Soviet-made rockets that hit Ghouta were documented to be in the possession of the regime, but not the rebels. While the initial UN report on the Ghouta attack was officially not seeking to assign blame, it did, in fact, determine where the sarin-filled projectiles were fired from and named an area just north of central Damascus, which is under tight government control. Human Rights Watch identified it as Mount Kassiun, a base of Assad's elite Republican guards. So, right off the bat, pretty damning evidence implicating the regime. Nonetheless, we were treated to this barrage of false flag squawking from the pseudo-left dictator-shilling conspiracy theorists. And what really reveals how cynical it is, is that you'd hear exactly the same thing after the Kanshikun attack in April 2017 and the Duma attack in April 2018. They just trot it out each time. Every time there is a chemical attack in Syria, it is speculated on no evidence that the rebels did it as a provocation, even as the attacks come amid massive Assad-Putin bombardment of the same locales. Funny how the rebels have so much poisonous gas, an unlimited supply of poisonous gas, yet they only ever seem to use it against themselves. Do these conspiracy theorists bother to cite even one single report of a gas attack on regime-held territory throughout the course of the war? No, because they'd be hard-pressed to find one. There are a couple of ambiguous cases. There was one attack, not on regime-held territory actually, but a Kurdish-controlled enclave in the city of Aleppo that may have come under chemical attack by rival rebel factions 
according to Amnesty International, in May 2016. But overwhelmingly, these attacks have been on rebel-held territory. And this false flag theorizing is contemptible, denialist bullshit of the lowest order. And what's particularly ironic is that those who spew this jive think they are such cognoscenti, seeing through the lies of the dreaded mainstream media. In fact, mainstream outlets increasingly float such theories. After the Duma attack, Newsweek ran a piece by a self-promoting ex-spook by the name of Ian Wilkie, who said identical garbage in the pages of that organ of the hated corporate media. You can Google it up. It was entitled, Where's the Evidence? Assad used sarin gas on his people. Meanwhile, his transparent propaganda is called out by truly alternative media, such as EA Worldview and Counter Vortex, which closely and seriously monitor the Syrian war. And independent investigative websites like Bellingcat, which somehow we're all supposed to hate, for doing exactly what fairness and accuracy in reporting, FAIR, should be doing, but has totally dropped the ball on because it has also been co-opted by Kremlin propaganda. As we have documented before, see our podcast of July 10th, 2022. Serial pro-Assad propagandist James Carden, also engaged in such baseless theorizing in the nation after the Kanshikun attack in a piece entitled The Chemical Weapons Attack in Syria. Is there a place for skepticism? Question mark. Again, citing the dubious claims of Theodore Postel, about which more later. Now, Cardin may protest that he is not pro-Assad, but when you rally to the defense of the regime, every time it carries out some ghastly atrocity, I would love to know in what sense this does not constitute support. And we should note the utter hypocrisy of the so-called anti-war people who serve as an online amplifier for this kind of propaganda, who all took to the streets to protest after the bombardment in response to the Kanshikun and Duma attacks. Now, even if you think that we have no responsibility to protest any atrocity not directly carried out by the United States or its client states, such as Israel, itself a problematic position. Note that in the weeks prior to Trump's airstrikes in response to Kanshikun, some 600 overwhelmingly civilians had been killed in the U.S. bombardment of then ISIS-held Raqqa and Mosul in Syria and Iraq, respectively, eliciting no street protest whatsoever. But an Assad regime airbase gets bombed and a few warplanes destroyed, and then they all take to the streets. Whatever else this may be, it is certainly not a consistent anti-war position. Now, before we move on to examine some other examples of Russian propaganda to appear in the nation, let me point out some of the problems with the sources that David Bromwich so glibly cites 
to cast doubt on the obvious reality of Assad regime culpability in the Gouda attack. The once honorable Seymour Hirsch is an open supporter of the Assad regime. Yes, open. In a December 9th, 2013 interview with Democracy Now!, just months after the Gouda attack, he said, quote, Inside the intelligence community, for the last year, it's been known that the only game in town, whether you like it or don't like it, was Bashar, because the opposition were being overrun by jihadists. The only solution for stability was Bashar. You just have to like it or don't like it, end quote. Now, all of a sudden, the intelligence community, which is supposedly trying to fool us with false flag attacks, becomes the voice of realism and authority. Whatever, Seymour. Okay, Aaron Mate, formerly of the nation, has since moved on to uh, bigger and better things. His work is certainly aggressively promoted by RT, official organ of Kremlin propaganda, although it isn't certain what the formal nature of the relationship is between him and the Kremlin, a de facto one at the very least. And I'll just point out the Theodore Postal's Claims supposedly loaning credence to the false flag theory were rejected by human rights groups as based on flawed modeling. And his similar denialist claims about the Kanchikun chemical attack and Noam Chomsky's touting of them are deftly deconstructed by Mohammed Idris Ahmad on the New Arab website in a piece that ran May 5th, 2017, entitled Chomsky and the Syria Revisionists, Regime Whitewashing. Google it up if you need to be disabused of your illusions. And if only the nation were doing its job and running Mohammed Idris Ahmad rather than David Bromwich. Okay, now let's turn our attention to Stephen F. Cohen, who died in 2020, but was long the editorial eminence Greece at The Nation magazine, especially on matters concerning Russia. And he facilitated the spreading of outright lies on behalf of Putin's foreign policy aims, and in particular, the Bashar Assad dictatorship. Cohen was featured in an online audio interview on The Nation website on August 17th, 2016, critically during the massive bombardment of the then rebel-held city of Aleppo by Assad's and Putin's warplanes, once again dutifully parroting the Moscow line on both Syria and Ukraine. But the Syria discussion reached an unprecedented nadir, even for him. Echoing the standard Russian propaganda trick of conflating all rebel forces with ISIS, even as the Syrian rebels were actually fighting ISIS. Reads the introductory text for the interview, quote, 
Putin needs a decision by Obama now as the critical battle for Aleppo intensifies. Under his own pressure at home, Putin seems resolved to end the Islamic State's occupation of Syria, Aleppo being a strategic site without or with U.S. cooperation, which he would prefer to have, end quote. Now, what did the Putin-Assad bombardment of Aleppo have to do with the fight against ISIS? Absolutely nothing. ISIS was not in Aleppo. Its attempts to establish an enclave in the city were, in fact, repulsed by the very rebel forces under the loose umbrella of the Free Syrian Army that Moscow and Damascus were then savagely bombing. A total reversal of reality. Another one to file under Orwell would shit, but sincere leftists will only get their news from places like the nation, will never know they're being lied to. And interestingly, the interview was conducted by the very pro-Israel John Batchelor, pointing to a convergence of the American left and the Zionist right around a pro-Moscow, pro-dictatorship position animated by fear of the Arab masses. So we must ask again, why is the left today so suspicious of revolution? Also in the nation that August 2016 was a piece by Adam H. Johnson of the ironically named Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, FAIR, entitled Pundits Decrying the Horrors of War in Aleppo Demand Expanded War. And there is more deception just in the headline than dishonest use of the epithet pundit, as if this category does not include Stephen Cohen and Johnson himself. Note that what is to blame for the horror in Aleppo is just the abstract word war, not identifiable parties like Putin and Assad. The thrust of the piece was to argue against a no-fly zone for Aleppo, which was dismissed as a humanitarian euphemism, quote-unquote, you would never know from reading this that the demand for a no-fly zone was not being raised just by stateside pundits, but by the people of Aleppo, betrayed by the outside world. The city's residents had even taken to burning hundreds of tires in the streets to create a haze over the city as a hindrance to bombing raids, their own improvised no-fly zone. Now, there were certainly problems with the notion of a no-fly zone over Aleppo. First and foremost, getting the Russians to go along with it, or else risking direct superpower confrontation. Everybody understood that. But to portray it merely as a demand of pundits and laptop bombardiers, quote-unquote, is sickening propaganda and contemptuous of the Syrians. The people on the ground coming under bombardment. Okay, then we come to Stephen Cohen on Ukraine. On April 30th, 2014, just as the Ukraine crisis was mounting, 
after the Maidan Revolution and the Russian seizure of Crimea and fomenting of the separatist revolt in Donbass, Cohen had a piece in The Nation, co-authored with the magazine's longtime editor, also his wife, Katrina Vandenhuvel. Warning of a new Cold War against Russia without debate, quote-unquote. This was yet another parroting of Putin propaganda of the type that Cohen had been spreading all over the left and even mainstream media in the U.S. since the Ukraine crisis erupted. Cohen and Vanden Heuvel in this piece used a sucker punch approach, starting off sounding reasonable to draw in the naive. They rightly warned of the potential for an escalation to World War III, quote-unquote, and offered a few nods to a neither-nor position that rejected the imperialism of both sides. For instance, noting the, quote, inflammatory American, Russian, and Ukrainian media misinformation, end quote. However, these are quickly revealed as mere lip service through such rhetorical devices as referring to Putin's aggression with the word aggression in scare quotes. And despite the perfunctory acknowledgement of Russian inflammation, we are exhorted to consider, quote, Moscow's side of the story, end quote, in utterly misinformed terms. For instance, quote, that 20 years of NATO's eastward expansion has caused Russia to feel cornered, end quote. Undoubtedly, but the eastward expansion was only facilitated through the eager partnership of Eastern and Central Europe's post-communist governments, which had plenty of reason to feel cornered themselves after generations of living in the shadow of Russian aggression. No quotation marks. Thank you. Poland and the Baltic Republics, 1939. Hungary, 1956. Czechoslovakia, 1968. Etc. This refusal to acknowledge the Eastern Europeans as actors in their own drama only gets worse from here. Quote, that the Ukraine crisis was instigated by the West's attempt last November to smuggle the former Soviet Republic into NATO, end quote. Is that what happened? Now, last November, that is November 2013, can only be a reference to the start of the Maidan protests. The Maidan protests were a mere creation of the West. All those demonstrators were paid agents of the CIA or State Department. Ukrainians were perfectly happy under the corrupt oligarchic regime of Viktor Yanukovych before the West went in and steered things up. And is Ukraine even now, let alone when Cohen was writing back in 2014, a NATO member? It seems to me Ukraine only approved a provisional stationing of NATO forces within its territory in April 2014, after Russia had illegally annexed the Crimea and de facto annexed the Donbass. So what could Cohen and Vanden Heuvel mean by November, other than the start of the Maidan protest? Utterly paranoid or outright dishonest, and again, 
utterly contemptuous of the Ukrainian people. More, quote, that the West's jettisoning in February of its own agreement with then-President Viktor Yanukovych brought to power in Kiev an unelected regime so anti-Russian and so uncritically embraced by Washington that the Kremlin felt an urgent need to annex predominantly Russian Crimea, the home of its most cherished naval base, end quote. All right, now, I'm not sure what he means by the West's jettisoning in February of its own agreement with then-President Viktor Yanukovych. I can only assume this means ceasing to recognize him as the president after he had been removed by a vote of the Ukrainian parliament, which is rather reversing cause and effect. But a more critical point. Interesting. The same co-authors... Cohen and Vanden Heuvel, who are blind to the fears that drew Poland and the Baltic republics into NATO's arms, make excuses for Russia's revanchist aggression on the basis that an unfriendly regime had come to power in its smaller and weaker neighbor. And again, Yanukovych reigniting the protest movement through his um, attempted power grab via draconian constitutional changes, isn't even acknowledged. The Ukrainians apparently play no role in Ukraine, only the West. But there's more. Quote, and most recently, that Kiev's sending of military units to suppress protests in pro-Russian eastern Ukraine is itself a violation of the April 17th agreement to de-escalate the crisis, end quote. So now, armed separatists, almost certainly backed by Russian covert military forces, become protesters. Cute. And of course, no mention is made of Russia's repeated violations of Ukrainian airspace over this period, or the reports of Russian ground forces posing as homegrown militias in eastern Ukraine. Let's turn our attention to one more charlatan, Bob Dreyfus. In July 2014, after the Gouda attack, ran a piece in the nation unabashedly entitled, U.S. should back Syria's Assad against ISIS. Quote, unquote. Dreyfus favorably quoted former U.S. ambassador to Iraq and Afghanistan, Ryan Crocker's, obscene remarks in the New York Times a few months earlier that, quote, Assad is the least worst option, end quote. He also similarly endorsed recent comments to the same effect from Leslie Gelb in the same New York Times that leftists supposedly deride as an organ of the imperial elite. He writes with wide-eyed credulity that Assad has, quote, wrongly been accused of supporting ISIS, end quote. That's pretty hilarious. This is the same Bob Dreyfus who has been arguing for years that Israel covertly backed Hamas as a stratagem against Fatah before things got out of control. But he summarily dismisses the notion that Assad similarly backed jihadists as a stratagem against the secular opposition before things similarly got out of control. However, there are more fundamental faults here. The betrayal of Syria's secular opposition 
by the entire world is exactly what led to the emergence of ISIS. The jihadists, with their own arms networks, filled the vacuum. Those, including Dreyfus, of course, who argued against support for the Syrian opposition because they were supposedly jihadists, engaged in a self-fulfilling prophecy, and not always unwittingly. And this is another example of what we may now call the pseudo-left in a political convergence with the paleoconservative right, that faction of the Beltway elite that have their money on Bashar Assad. This is a reaction against the neoconservative regime change hubris, as if the paleocon enthusiasm for stability under dictatorships were any more progressive. And this is indicative of a deeper problem still. Once again, the growing internalization of the imperial viewpoint in what used to be called the left. We've noted before Dreyfus's coziness with figures such as Leslie Gelb and outright political love affair with Chas Freeman, the great granddaddy of the paleocons. This is the most egregious example of what Syrian exile activist Leila al-Shami derided as the paradoxical state-centric discourse of the left on Syria. In her 2014 commentary, quote, left solidarity with Syria, supporting the grassroots movements, which ran on her website and is also on the Counter Vortex website, she basically decried that there was, you know, more interest in playing policy wonk, as if those in the corridors of power give a hoot what we think, than what should be the critical work of progressives in the West, building solidarity with the secular civil resistance in Syria, which continues to exist in spite of everything, even now, and was considerably stronger in 2014. As Syrians put their lives on the line to oppose a genocidal regime, the best that leftists in the U.S. can do is call for Washington to back the dictatorship? Just maddening! And once again, if only the nation were publishing writers like Leila al-Shami instead of Bob Dreyfus. And interestingly, I've been calling out these lies and distortions in the pages of the nation for a long time. The very first thing that I blogged up on the project that became Counter Vortex, I first launched it under a different name in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, the very first thing that I blogged on this website was a critique of a story in the nation by Robert Shear, entitled Bush's Faustian Deal with the Taliban, that ran in the nation in June 2001, but got a lot of online circulation after 9-11. And the piece was claiming that the U.S. gave $43 million in drug war aid to Afghanistan's Taliban regime that year. Now, this immediately struck me as improbable because the U.S. didn't diplomatically recognize the Taliban regime, and therefore no bureaucratic channels existed for aiding the regime. And in fact, doing so would have been illegal. So I did some Googling to try to determine the actual facts, and as can be gleaned, 
from more objective and less polemical coverage from more responsible sources, such as the wire services, this aid was mostly for drought relief and to be distributed through NGOs, bypassing the Taliban. Some $10 million of it, not $43 million, $10 million, was for crop substitution programs, which the Taliban supported or at least tolerated as a part of their anti-opium campaign. But what is implied by Shear's wording, quote, a gift of 43 million to the Taliban rulers of Afghanistan, end quote, is very different. And he doesn't even mention the NGOs. Utterly dishonest. And either intentionally misleading or completely ignorant. And, you know, having gone back and reread what I blogged up about that, I really wish I had been a lot harsher in my criticism of this piece <laughs> in what I blogged up on September 30th, 2001, because after 20 years of this kind of work, I have far less tolerance for this kind of thing. And I will note that 20 years after I called this piece out as seriously distorted at best, it is still on the nation website with no correction line or anything of the sort. All right, now to go over some of my own history with the nation, I did write for them occasionally back in the 90s and late 80s, I believe, before they completely surrendered to Russian foreign policy aims. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the last story that I did for them, which appeared in the issue of December 24th, 2007 entitled, Iraq's Civil Resistance. The secular left brings together unionists, women's organizations, and students. Now, earlier that year, I had attended a conference in Tokyo, hosted by a local Japanese anti-war group, at which the guests of honor were representatives from an organization called the Iraqi Freedom Congress, IFC, made up of several anti-occupation and pro-democracy forces, led at its core by Marxists and feminists, and including organizations such as the Organization of Women's Freedom in Iraq, ALFI, which was and is doing really heroic work. And the IFC was building civil opposition both to the U.S. occupation and to the sectarian and jihadist militias, whether Sunni or Shiite. And I really wanted to get out the word about these folk and their work, so I approached The Nation magazine, and they actually went for it and gave me the assignment. But they insisted, I'm not going to name the editor who I was dealing with, it may have been a collective decision, but they insisted that in addition to quoting the Iraqi leaders I had interviewed in Tokyo, that I turned to the predictable talking heads of the establishment left here in the U.S. to hear what they had to say about the Iraqi Freedom Congress. And chief among these, of course, was the inevitable Phyllis Bennis, the establishment left requisite Middle East expert, just like Stephen Cohen was its requisite Russia expert. 
and she made some not insulting, but neither very enthusiastic or incisive comments about the IFC, which I honestly think she was only vaguely even aware of. And I played along and quoted her like a good boy, because I wanted the story to run. But once again, boy, do I regret it now. I was way too much of a softie back then. And also, Bennis's politics, like the nation's, have really deteriorated since then. It's funny, the Arab Revolution, which you would think lefties across the world would have supported, just threw everyone off kilter and cemented the alliance between the supposed left and the paleocon, or isolationist right. Bennis also, at least, loaned some comfort to the Gouda denialist bandwagon after the attack in 2013, she ran a requisite anti-intervention piece in The Nation entitled Moral Obscenities in Syria, an intentionally ironic title because she was actually arguing that somebody doing something to restrain Assad would be the moral obscenity. And this piece also equivocated about whether there had been a chemical attack and repeated the dubious qui bono argument, yes, she actually invoked the Latin phrase, about how it was the rebels rather than the regime that stood to gain from such an attack. She concluded, quote, any U.S. military attack, cruise missiles or anything else, will not be to protect civilians. It will mean taking sides once again in a bloody, complicated civil war, and Al-Qaeda would be very pleased, end quote. To which I respond, one, if I were sitting in a Damascus suburb with Assad's missiles and poison gas raining down on my head, I might have more pressing concerns than U.S. motives. The notion that the Syrians who were eager for intervention were naive about U.S. intentions is deeply insulting. Two, the word complicated is always invoked by those who seek the comfort of neutrality in the face of aggression and even genocide. We heard that same cowardly word from the left when Radovan Karadzic was committing genocide in Bosnia in the 90s. Three, Al-Qaeda was also doubtless very pleased by Assad's butchery. I asked in 2013, and I ask now, should the world stand back and let it continue forever? Are there any lines beyond which outside powers have a responsibility to act? Just asking. And after the Duma attack in 2018, Bennis engaged in even more blatant denialism, appearing on Democracy Now! to spin the situation as Iraq Redux, she recalled, quote, the horrific stories about the invasion force of Saddam Hussein in Kuwait marching into a hospital and killing babies, end quote. This was, of course, a reference to the infamous Nurse Nayira, whose bogus testimony about non-existent Iraqi war crimes in Kuwait helped lubricate Operation Desert Storm in 1991. Except that Nayira testified before Congress months after the Kuwait invasion, and was groomed by the Kuwaiti regime's public relations firm 
Hill, and Bolton. So what did this have to do with the then fresh reports from aid workers from several organizations on the ground in Duma, Syrian American Medical Society, the White Helmets, Syria Civil Defense, with harrowing video evidence, plenty of it, and not even enough time for any PR grooming. Oh, that's right, nothing. Totally bogus propaganda. And she is, surprise, surprise, no more helpful on Ukraine today. Her piece in response to Putin's invasion back in February on the Foreign Policy in Focus website is entitled, quote, Respond to Putin's Illegal Invasion of Ukraine with Diplomacy, Not War, end quote. She starts out once again, talking a good game to draw in the innocent readers. Yes, the Russian invasion is bad, a generous concession, but she's immediately blaming NATO for encroachment, quote-unquote, as if this lets Putin off the hook, and naively talking about diplomacy while death was raining down on Kiev and Kharkiv. Not a word here about a total embargo on Russian oil and gas, which is the minimum response now demanded from the outside world. On the contrary, she actually speaks against sanctions and gives us the false choice of either diplomacy or war, as if any actual pressure on Putin means war, and as if war were not already a fact, thanks to Putin. This is soft-sell shilling for war criminals, perhaps even worse than the outright tanky Putin cheering for being more insidious. And this is why Phyllis Bennis is now part of the problem, and why I regret having legitimized her by quoting her back in 2007. All right, uh, giving credit where it's due, I suppose, a little dissent from the pro-Assad line does appear in the pages of the nation from time to time. For instance, in September 2016, Assad regime to besieged Aleppo, surrender or starve, by Roy Gutman. Still, the attitude seems to be, at best, that opposition to and support of fascism and genocide are two equally valid viewpoints. So was Gutman's airing of a principled position paradoxically legitimizing all the Putin puffery and Assad apologism that the nation has run? And this raises the tactical question of whether it is better to try to pry open the nation to a revolutionary position on Syria and risk loaning legitimacy to a publication that is overwhelmingly pro-dictatorship, or to boycott them on principle and risk abandoning their readers to sinister propaganda. Well, since the Ukraine war, I have solidified my position that the ethical and tactically mandated course is to boycott them on principle. Someone has to advocate the hardcore, no-compromise position here, and that someone is me. This war propaganda and genocide denialism is what you are legitimizing if your byline appears in the pages of the nation. And I don't care how much good stuff they run. It is discredited by this toxic shit.
And I'm just going to close by pointing out that identical toxic propaganda is being spewed by our supposed enemies on the Trumpian right. After the Duma attack in 2018, Tucker Carlson stated on Fox News, quote, All the geniuses tell us that Assad killed those children. But do they really know that? Of course they don't know that. They're making it up. They have no real idea what happened. Actually, both sides in the Syrian civil war possess chemical weapons. How would it benefit Assad from using chlorine gas last weekend? End quote. So there you go. Tucker Carlson spewing the identical garbage that we get from establishment left pundits in The Nation magazine. And I'll also point out that on July 17th, 2018, Stephen Cohen appeared on Tucker Carlson to defend Trump's recent pusillanimous and fawning meeting with Putin in Helsinki, which had just taken place. And I found that interview. I don't believe that was his only time appearing on Tucker Carlson. So the very last thing that I want to say is that this is why the inevitable charge that I am red-baiting by engaging in such criticism is so blatantly dishonest. There is nothing remotely socialist about Putin's Russia. Putin hates Lenin, has brought the remains of Anton Denikin, the leader of the anti-Bolshevik white Russian resistance, back to Moscow to be re-interred with honors. He glorifies the empire of the czars and is putting a fascistic order in place in Russia in league with loyal capitalist oligarchs. And meanwhile, all you guys who are spreading his war propaganda are doing so in league with Tucker Carlson and the Trumpian right. So you can take your accusation of red baiting and shove it. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org, where everything I've been ranting about tonight is hyperlinked and documented. Please support us on Patreon. Join the Counter Vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time.